Welcome to the Music Ed Forward podcast, curriculum design that transforms students, teachers, and communities through music education. My name is Nissa Brown with Music Ed Forward, musicedforward.com. You can follow Music Ed Forward on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Be sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on Stitcher, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. Welcome to episode 24 of the Music Ed Forward podcast, Music Education for Social Change, an interview with Dr. Juliette Hess. This week's podcast features the amazing Dr. Juliette Hess. Dr. Juliette Hess is an associate professor of music education at Michigan State University, having previously taught elementary and middle school music in Toronto. Her book, Music Education for Social Change, Constructing an Activist Music Education, explores the intersection of activism, critical pedagogy, and music education. Juliette received her Ph.D. in Sociology of Education from the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. Her research interests include anti-oppression education, activism in music and music education, music education for social justice, and the question of ethics in world music study. Since the recording of this podcast, Dr. Hess has also co-published a book with Deborah Bradley called Trauma and Resilience in Music Education haunted melodies. Additionally, Dr. Hess is a prolific writer, having published too many articles to mention by name. But please check out a selection of her articles at musicedforward.com slash podcast slash 24. This interview will focus on Dr. Hess's incredible book, Music Education for Social Change, Constructing an Activist Music Education. Thank you, Dr. Hess, for your time and inspiration and for sharing your experience and expertise in our podcast interview. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Juliette Hess. We are so glad you're here. Glad to be here. So excited to talk with you today about your book. But before we jump into that, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and your passion, your mission, your work in music ed? Yeah. So I came by it pretty naturally. Like I was born into a musical family. So music seemed like a a logical path, which is not necessarily how it usually goes. My mom was a professional musician. So I was definitely involved in music quite young and played piano and sang all the way up and much to my chagrin about the piano part anyway, and (laughs) which did grow on me eventually. And I also was kind of concurrently teaching. Like I taught in some capacity from like age 12, like I started tutoring quite young and really enjoyed working with people, usually on math, but it depended. And so when I got to the university stage, I was accepted into music and I auditioned for performance because I thought at that time I wanted to be an opera singer. I actually was accepted into music education due to the insight of the people who saw me audition. At the time, I kind of brought materials. I had done a cooperative learning. It's something done in Canada that's kind of like a work internship toward the end of high school is something you can do. So I did a work internship at the Canadian Opera Company and I worked in the education department. So I had all of these like education materials that I had prepped and I brought them to my audition and they placed me in music ed. And I was like, this isn't what I want. And then I started taking music ed courses and I was like, oh, this is exactly what I want. Um, (laughs) They did the exact right thing for me. And the other really significant thing that happened at that time was I took a Ghanaian drumming and dancing course that was called African Drumming and Dancing, which was in the tradition of the way things get named in racist ways. Sure. Uh, But the course was actually specifically A-Way music and it changed my life. I got into it and I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Like I couldn't think it 
in the way that it needed to be thought. When it came to the dancing, I was like, wait, I have to step twice on my right foot and then twice on my left foot. Like I can't, I can't do that. And like, it just felt so different than anything else I'd ever done. And, you know, it probably took me a full year of studying before I started to kind of hear the polyrhythms and get into kind of learning the music on its own terms instead of like trying to figure out like where it fit in my Western box. And it was my first experience really learning in an oral tradition and, you know, even any kind of dance. Like that was my first encounter with dance really. So it was a life-changing experience and it really informed everything that came after. And then I took, I graduated uh, in Canada. There's a teacher's college year. So you certify for teaching in kind of a fifth year. That's a a separate undergrad. So I actually have a bachelor of music and a bachelor of education for that fifth year. And then I took a teaching job and I got hired actually to teach an instrumental gig And because the, you know, there wasn't really knowledge, like if you're a music person, you're a music person, just because you're a choral person, like that doesn't mean you can't teach band. But of course it did mean that I can't teach band. (laughs) And so I got hired in this instrumental gig and I of course took the job. And, you know, so I took seven instruments home that summer and I played them all every day, trying to learn how to do it and sat in a class as they were finishing the year and kind of did their last month of class with them in an instrumental music class someone kindly allowed me to sit in and I remember you know playing all of those instruments every day in the summer and I remember some point in August I like buzzed into a flute and realized like my mouth was confused at that point like I was trying to do too many things so I was like I think I might need a day off but then I started doing that and then I really expanded that program like the instruments were actually purchased in my birth year so they were in rough shape and that was complicated like it's complicated to ask students to play instruments that are in really bad shape because the beginner struggle is hard enough without fighting your instrument too. True. Yeah. So I did a lot of general music things in that program. I added a huge drumming component and had two Ghanaian drum and dance ensembles. I called them kind of beginner and advanced and ran those the whole time that I was there. And I also started a choral program, which the school had never had before. That was very much part of, you know, everything that I did in the classroom. And then I think in about my third year of teaching, I applied for a master's part-time. So I did my master's part-time while teaching full-time, which is not something I'd really recommend, to be honest. It was a lot. lot. And my master's thesis was, you know, I felt like I had particular goals for the Ghanaian drum and dance ensembles that I ran. And a lot of those goals were kind of politically minded. Like I you know, wanted to break down some of the stereotypes that students might hold about Africa as a continent Mm -hmm. and Ghana specifically, and have them thinking a little bit more politically minded that I realized three or four years in that I had no idea if those goals were being met by any stretch of the imagination. I could recognize the students were awesome at playing the music and really took to that aspect of it, but I didn't know if any of the other goals were being accomplished. So my master's thesis was interviewing nine of the students and, you know, talking further about their experiences. And that was a really interesting kind of start to research. And then another thing that was simultaneously happening is that I was trying to figure out like how to do anti-racist work in the classroom. And so having conversations about colonialism when doing Ghanaian drumming 
and that kind of thing. But I also didn't have a car. So I couldn't access any of the professional development that was offered in my school district. So there was a day that I can remember in the classroom where the official act of multiculturalism uses the term visible minority, which is a really loaded and problematic term, obviously. And we were having a discussion in a fifth grade class and one of the students said the term and I didn't want to just let it stand. So I put it on the blackboard and started to unpack it with the students. And we had a really good conversation. But as I was kind of standing there, I was like, how do other people do this? Like, Mm -hmm. I just, you know, I felt like there was no real guidelines to having those kinds of conversations in the classroom. So for my doctorate, when I went back, and I went back full time, and I basically found four teachers who were doing anti-racist work in their classroom, and sat in their classrooms for eight weeks at a time. And oh, wow. I made my own professional development. So it was an amazing experience. And when I finished my doctorate, I applied to teach elementary middle school again and also teach higher ed because it didn't make a difference to me, like where I landed. Like I feel like I could do public school teaching so much better now having done the doctorate and would, you know, have loved a second opportunity. But at the time that I applied for positions, there were 37,500 unemployed certified teachers in Ontario. So I did not get a teaching job. Wow. And I got a visiting professorship at Syracuse University. So moved to the States mm-hmm. and that visiting gig was two years. And then I got a tenure track gig at MSU. And that's kind of where I've been since. And this position is a great fit for me in that I get to teach, you know, I teach at the undergrad level, secondary methods and principles of music, which is like our sophomore kind of foundations course. And I piloted a course in disability studies two years ago, which I get to teach again this year. And I also did an interdisciplinary songwriting course with a colleague in writing and rhetoric last year. And we are hopefully doing that again this spring. So those are all kind of my niche things in in undergrad. And then at the grad level, I teach philosophy and sociology. And my terminal degree isn't actually in music education. It's in sociology and equity studies. So sociology is definitely my jam. And so those are two of my courses. And I was able to start a course teaching a course on race and racism in music education. And so that I've been teaching every other year as well. And then the disability studies course at the undergrad level is actually a grad course too. So it's both sets of students in there at the same time. So I couldn't ask for a better fit in terms of the kinds of things that I get to teach and the students who I get to interact with. So that's, that's that's amazing. I knew parts of your background, but I, I certainly did not know it to that extent. And I can see how all those things come together to create the courses that you're talking about, but also to create this book that we're going to talk about today too. Like all those pieces, I'm like, oh, oh, I get how she put those pieces together now. So I'm really excited even more to talk with you about the book. Right on. <laughs> so we will talk about lots of connected pieces, whatever you want to throw into our combo today, but we're going to be referencing the book that you wrote, Music Education for Social Change, Constructing an Activist Music Education, which was published in 2019. I'm curious, although your intro speaks to it very highly. What brought this book into being? Why did you decide to write this in 2019? And what is your hope for its impact? So I actually started the project in 2014. And I started it in August and right after Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. And I 
was watching the horror unfold and trying to figure out, we have this really kind of idiosyncratic almost corner of the world, right? In music education. And I don't always see immediate connections to how we can participate in some of the larger activist work that is happening in communities. And I was watching that unfold. And at the same time, I also, anytime there's a national, global, even a local tragedy, like the first thing I do is look at music education and say, okay, how can we help? Mm -hmm. And like, how can we participate and do something in our particular corner of the world that might make a difference to these larger forces that are at play? So this book really came out of like, watching the activism that was happening in the street and participating in protests locally and trying to think if this was in music education, if this was in schools, like what would it look like to have something activist in schools and like thinking that it would likely look very different than anything that's on the streets, but wanting to find a way. So I decided that I wanted to speak to people who identified as both activists and musician. Like I wasn't actually looking for teachers. I was looking for people who were doing activist work in some capacity through music. And I spoke to 20 people that fall. And then in November, Tamir Rice was killed. And the urgency, the idea that a sixth or seventh grader could be sitting in a room knowing someone their age was targeted just for their identity. Mm. And I mean, it made me want to double down, right? Like it felt, I don't have words for the unspeakable violence that has been wreaked, particularly upon Black people mm. in the past. There isn't even, you can't even time bound it. Yeah. Um, how bad it is. Right. What time period would you cite, right? And so, you know, just thinking about like what we might do in music education to support students. And knowing also that there are very differential levels of privilege in the classroom. And the day after Tamir Rice was shot, for example, you know, there would be students who might be oblivious to the fact that it happened and coupled by students who were terrified and crying. And, you know, having all of those students in the class at once requires a particular pedagogy and, you know, requires an ability to have some critical conversations that address the issues, but also, you know, foster almost an identity or a way of being in the world so that we have a different possible outcome in the future, as opposed to replicating what has happened over and over and over again. And I think that, you know, I have so much faith in the youth of today you know, I, I look at what is just accepted and, you know, with none of the resistance of the older generation in so many capacities. And it gives me a lot of hope. So mm. I think talking with these activist musicians was for me a way to conceptualize what we might do in music ed. And one of the questions that I asked them that was really key to this project was like, you know, given who you are in the world and what you do, like, what would you have liked to have had in school? Like what would have like set you up to do you? Yep. And, you know, so much of the book came from that. And I think the book really emerged from like 
ideas about music. So the second chapter in the book is about all the things that music does, like the role of music in the world. And for the activist musicians, music was about connection Mm -hmm. and it was about communication, about ways to tell a story. And it was about being political, like music is political. And then the other thing that they really noted was that music can also be dangerous. And I think that as music educators, we often forget that. Mm -hmm. And that needs to very much be on the table because in all of the ways that music can serve as a platform to disrupt and trouble some of the really problematic things that happen in society, music can absolutely reinscribe those same things. Mm -hmm. And we need to make sure we're aware of that in order to prevent against it. So then from thinking about the role of music in the world, each of those facets became a pedagogy. So this idea of connection became a pedagogy of community and thinking about the different ways that we build community, that we connect to our histories and that we connect to what I call unfamiliar others, which is a term that I struggled with. But also I think what I mean by that is occasionally or not so occasionally when we do it intentionally, we encounter a group of people that we've never actually encountered in real life because we do a music that they have, that's their musical practice. Mm -hmm. And that allows us to have an encounter with a group of people that might allow us to think differently and break down perhaps some of the stereotypes. And so that's kind of the third facet of a pedagogy of community. And then this idea of music as a means to tell a story became a pedagogy of expression. And this element of the pedagogy of expression was 18 of the 20 activist musicians were like songwriting should be curriculum in school. And that is not Uh, something that we necessarily encounter often in music ed, because that's not always what we're doing in school. mm -hmm. So it, it was very much about a means to tell a story and to express your experiences. But I kind of backtracked in that chapter because I think in order to invite students to express their experiences, we first have to validate them. So there was a really strong kind of place-based education, culturally responsive teaching component of that chapter because we have to do that work if we're going to ask for vulnerability. And I think that there are a lot of also cautions that we can put around vulnerability because lots of things come out in songwriting type contexts in terms of like personal trauma. And, you know, we need to be really careful about what we're asking for and also ensuring students have a right of refusal in that capacity because they don't have to offer themselves up by any stretch of the imagination. So I think that there are some caveats that we have to put in place. And then that third facet for music, music as political became a pedagogy of noticing. And the facets of that is noticing the ideologies that are circulating around you, like attending to them and noticing the things that shape your own lived conditions and the conditions of others. And then the third facet of that is moving to action. Like once we recognize all this stuff, we have to do something about it. Mm. So that's really kind of the crux of what came out of this project in terms of impact. I think, you know, in a lot of ways, in my conclusion, I was pretty dogmatic in some ways with my definition of activism. And I'm not sure that this is necessarily activist by definition, but what I do think is all these things set the conditions for activism. Like if we engage in music education in this way, we absolutely are fostering the kind of critical thinking that could provoke engagement in the future and, or in the present. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think in terms of impact, that's what I'm hoping for. 
Wonderful. That was an incredibly succinct but powerful summation of the book, just the way that you described it. Let's break down that activist music education piece a little bit, because there are so many music educators who are looking to be a part of the solution. And you touched on so many of those points so beautifully. And so many music educators want to be a part of the solution of this untangling of this systemic oppression, injustice, violence, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, that really is embedded within our schools, unfortunately, and of course our societies. And in the book, I'm going to go ahead and quote, which is part of a summary of what you just did. Activist music education aims to equip youth across three main areas, fostering connection with others, honoring and sharing lived experiences, and developing the ability to think critically about the world. So when you talk about that, would you change anything now? Do you think about that any differently now than you did when you wrote it? Has any of your research or or lived experience or talking with anybody else changed that? Or do you approach it the same way when you wrote it? I think for me, a lot of it is the same. Like, I feel like in some ways I would double down, particularly on the learning to think critically, Mm. like given the polarization and that is happening in this country and the attack on democracy and the misinformation that is constantly circulating, you know, we see it in the anti-vax movement and, you know, all of the anti-propaganda against critical race theory at the moment, as well as all of the political misinformation that just keeps on circulating. So I think, you know, the need to think critically and be able to question and challenge what's put in front of you is absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. And so I think I would emphasize that even more. But I think, you know, in terms of adding or changing something like the pedagogy of expression really came from activist musicians desire to see songwriting in schools. And I think if I were to go back now, I'd actually place more emphasis on listening because that wasn't so much a big part of what I was doing in this text because I was really drawing on what I heard from participants. So songwriting absolutely can be a part of the curriculum, but we also need to learn how to listen in schools. And I think that listening needs to not be listening to respond, but listening to actually understand another's perspective. and. You know, I think maybe some of that is embedded in the idea of honoring students' lived experiences, because certainly that requires listening to students, but I wasn't explicit about it. And I think if I were to go back, it just seems so essential right now to have a really strong listening culture, and particularly given the polarization of the climate at the moment. And I mean, it seems like it's been like this for a long time now. And just to actually listen to the activist movements that are happening and not necessarily move to judgment immediately, but actually just giving them some space and seeing what happens when you do that instead of jumping to conclusions or just blocking things out. So I think that would be one thing that I would do differently if I were to go back. Can I ask a clarifying question? When you're when you talk about listening, you mentioned listening to students, listening to activists. Are you talking about teachers listening? Are you talking about students listening? Are you talking about listening collectively? How do you think about that? I think I'm talking about both. You know, like I think, you know, teachers have so much to learn from students. Mm. And we sometimes forget that, I think. And students have so much to learn from each other. And also, I'm definitely pro a degree of vulnerability for teachers in the classroom, like being real with students about their own lived experiences. And I think when there is a degree of vulnerability, there's much to learn from a teacher's lived experience as well. And so I think I, I would reverse the traditional and make sure that we're learning from students 
and not vice versa. But I think that there collectively we have a lot to offer each other. And, you know, when we strip away rules and actually just see people in the room. That's so powerful, right? I, I hear lots of folks talking about how it's so different than how we're trained. We're trained to be in charge. We're trained to be the directors. We're trained to lead the ensembles. And leadership can look so many different ways. And I love this idea of leadership through listening uh, mm-hmm. and really honoring those students. So in order to meet the three criteria you have above, what shifts need to occur in practices in music education. So what did we learn, at least most of us who were trained in more Eurocentric music programs that we need to unlearn? And where do we need to shift our gaze? So just, you know, thinking about the three facets. So the first one I put forward is pedagogy of community, which is inherently about connection. And there are three facets to that. So it's building community, connecting to histories and connecting to unfamiliar others, which I talked about a little bit. So the first facet, I think the building community piece, we have to learn how to be together. So, you know, one of the things I think is really cool in music education is that the word ensemble is the French word for together. So that there were actually actually inherently that's what this is about. So I think, you know, much of music is teacher, director, conductor centered, whatever you want to call it. And building community actually centers students and it builds on Ferry's idea. Ferry um, put forward this idea of teacher student slash students teachers. So each teacher was also a student and students are also teachers. And it requires thinking about ensemble as togetherness and doing ensemble differently, I think. So then the second facet, connecting to histories, is not really a typical practice that we see in music education. And I think that's for a lot of reasons. You know, the pressure on performance is severe in music education and time taken away from that is often seen as something that's difficult to do. So I think the way that music is contextualized now, it might happen for so-called other musics, but it doesn't necessarily happen for every music and it needs to happen for every music. But that's to me, a gateway into how we start to understand music as a human practice is contextualizing and making sure we're understanding who the humans are behind each music. Mm. And then the third facet that's connecting to unfamiliar others happens when youth engage with music that originates from a group of people with whom they're not familiar. And I hope that by that engagement, we will come to understand the humanity and strengths of all groups. And, you know, I think music has that opportunity to be a humanizing practice. Mm. And then the second facet, which is a pedagogy of expression, I think, you know, the unlearning we have to do, like music ed as it stands in a lot of places is the ensemble model. So that's currently a reproduction model. So we reproduce the music of others, but we're not necessarily doing our own. So the pedagogy of expression encourages youth to kind of assert themselves and share their stories if that's something that they do want to do. So it's a creation model of education, which requires a paradigm shift. I mean, we're seeing that in some places. Certainly there are places where it's creativity based. And then the honoring piece of the pedagogy of expression, because we have to honor students' experience before we can even think about inviting them to share, is actually, I think, far more prevalent in music education than it used to be, like just in terms of like the prevalence of culturally responsive teaching. And I think Vicki Lind and Connie McCoy really have done a fabulous job in their book of just, you know, inserting 
these ideas into music education. And I think it's been pretty readily taken up and certainly evidenced by the number of conference presentations I see on that topic. So I think from that perspective, perhaps we don't need a paradigm shift. Perhaps we just need to continue going in the direction that we're doing it already. And then this pedagogy of noticing, this is rooted in a culture of questioning and it's got three facets as well, which I mentioned a little earlier. So it's like identifying the ideologies that are shaping what you encounter, recognizing the conditions that shape your lives and the lives of others, and then moving to action about it. So this is, it's really about finding ways to engage with critical thinking through music. I think we have a lot of unlearning to do to move towards anything resembling a culture of questioning right now. Questioning is not really encouraged in the current structure of school. You know, most of the expectations involve kind of capitulating to the dominant agenda. And that is social reproduction. So, you know, aiming to reproduce relations exactly as they are and to foster something different is a paradigm shift. But I think questioning is absolutely essential to a democracy. And there's a James Baldwin quote that I really like. He says he loves America more than any other country in the world. And as a result, claims the right to criticize her perpetually or something like that. It's a beautiful quote. And I think that that's exactly right. In order to foster a healthy democracy, if that's what you know, we're aiming for, we need critical questioners and people to challenge what they see in front of them. So I think, you know, in schools where some degree of banking education is still at play, which is Ferry's concept of like the way that knowledge gets deposited into so-called empty vessels. And none of that is true, right? Like students, of course, are not empty vessels. They bring a lot of knowledge and strengths to what they do. And I think creating a different paradigm than the banking paradigm that Fur wrote about so long ago in 1970. Like, I think it's time. Yeah. Well, back to the honoring, right? Yeah, there exactly. you go. <laughs> yeah. right on. Wonderful. Thank you. So in the book, you talk about music education being a really powerful tool for social justice. Why is music education so uniquely poised to help students foster these connections and to think critically about what they see and hear and to trust themselves in their own experiences in order to stand against oppression? Why music ed? I think because music already has all of those things inherently in it. Music is a human practice rooted in people's experience. And, you know, I really like the way Christopher Small conceptualizes that just in terms of like musicing as relationships. Mm. And I think if we approach it in that way, we connect to each other and to the people behind a particular music. And I think if we're intentional about contextualizing, music is also anti-oppressive because so much of what music is has emerged from struggle. And attending to that, just paying attention to that lends itself to activism. Mm -hmm. And in terms of like teaching youth to trust themselves, if we as teachers value them, trust them, and give them important responsibilities, we communicate that trust to them. So I think music is uniquely poised to do all these things because it already has all of those things just intrinsically as a part of music. Interesting kind of thinking about like the instrumentalist arguments for music education and the criticism that has been leveled against like the idea of arguing for music in schools because it does all these things. But the fact is music is, I think, unique because it has all of those things embedded in it already. Like we don't have to add on or look outside music at its core already has those, those components. Yeah. So I'm just reflecting if that's true, then what we do with it is our choice. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's obvious But as you were saying that, that just rang really true that then as a music teacher in my classroom, I'm the one 
Of course I am. But I'm the one who then decides how we create that space and how we interact with music and engage with music and how much space we give students to do the same and in what ways. It's like the promise is all there. So what are we going to do with it? Yeah, I think so too. Oh, I've never thought about it quite like that before. I really love that. I just got goosebumps, actually. That was really nice. Wow. So what are some of the model learning experiences? So if, if music is, you know, it's our choice what we do with it. What are some of the learning experiences that you've seen in music classrooms that you find particularly inspirational or things that have been particularly effective in helping move students towards social justice activism? And what could we learn from these examples as music teachers? So I think for me, much of it is conversation-based, things that come out of the music. I think that generally things that work really well always have a critical orientation behind them. And I really advocate for that. Like I think, you know, having a strong theoretical orientation is really helpful in the classroom. So my lens is anti-racism and anti-colonialism. Like I've spent a lot of time thinking about the ideas embedded in both of those theories and practices. So I always facilitate with those ideas in mind. So I think, you know, for example, I think when you're having critical conversations, it's very easy to kind of let it go off the path of what you are intending if you don't have a critical orientation that's operating. So one of the teachers in my doctoral study, Amanda, she was a first year teacher actually, and she had done a lot of work. She had decided to focus on the music of the African diaspora. And what she did was she traced the paths of the Middle Passage to the landing ports in the Americas and then looked at the music that resulted from that kind of cultural mixing that there was a, such an element of violence in there. Sure, forced, yeah. Um, yeah. So she looked at a lot of musics that ended up kind of fostering resistance, but she set it up like in the fall she had done, this was before I was there, I was there in January and February that year. In the fall, she had done an extensive a unit on Ghanaian drumming and dancing and then kind of traced the Ghanaian diaspora as well as, you know, one can. And she talked about enslavement pretty explicitly with her students. And she taught, I think it was a K-6 school, if I'm remembering correctly. And and this was a third grade class and she was having a conversation about enslavement and kind of child-friendly language, right? Like she was using terms and couching it in ways that they could understand. And then a third grader pipes up. She was like, well, you know, if I lived back then, I wouldn't own slaves. And that it would be very easy in an instance like that to just let that go down the garden path because a student is asserting themselves as a good person or whatever that means. Sure. And it would be very easy to just let that go. And what Amanda did, because she was operating through a critical orientation, was actually point to the fact that if this student's plantation was literally the only plantation that did not use enslavement and they were paying for labor, how much that would affect what they were able to do. So she basically put it to the student that they probably actually would have been complicit because mm -hmm. it wouldn't have worked. And she did that all in third grade language. And it was a pretty impressive day, but it really drove home for me. You know, it would be so easy to let a comment like that go. And it's when we're operating with an anti-racist framework that we can actually recognize why something like that doesn't actually work. And that these moves to innocence, you know, like there are plenty of people who have written about white moves to innocence. And that was exactly what the student did. And they're seven, they're eight. It's an understandable move. But to 
call that out and to not let that kind of discourse just stand in the classroom does something. Mm-hmm. So I think that there are moments like that where just a critical orientation is operating that can be really powerful. And I think another example I would offer, this is from Jason Wong in the book. He was working with Harlem youth and he was a teaching artist in schools and he created chants for the students in the classroom. And one of the chants was about speaking two languages and how great that is. And I feel like, you know, so often like monolingualism is valorized for reasons that I just don't understand. And people are criticized when they don't speak English. Mm -hmm. And it's the idea that we're not celebrating multilingualism. I mean, it's so strange to me because it's so much to celebrate. So he created this chant that as we were talking about it, he was hoping that it would kind of just run through their heads all day that, you know, about the beauty of speaking multiple languages. And, you know, I think that that's, you know, Amanda's approach is a critical approach, but then you also need the affirmation and particularly of minoritized voices. We have to find ways to kind of, I don't want to use any word like empower because I think that's kind of a bullshit word because who's empowering and like, what is the power dynamic embedded in that? But I think finding ways to affirm is really important as well in this kind of anti-oppressive work. So I think those would be examples that I would offer. If folks listening to the podcast are new to this idea of a critical lens, can you just give us a short definition of what that would mean? And if if folks need a little bit of backstory as to what you were talking about? So, I mean, I think that there are a lot of critical frameworks and I think a lot of them have to do with what's called standpoint theory. So standpoint theories are kind of rooted in someone's identity. So anti-racism theory. So I think using CRT, for example, critical race theory, because it's so prevalent in the discourse right now, like when you actually take time and kind of go through the tenets of like, you know, what is important to critical race theory in terms of like a critique of liberalism. So we're critiquing kind of liberal ideas of meritocracy and that kind of thing. And not necessarily the idea of meritocracy is that anyone can succeed if they just try hard enough, which of course is a policy because not everybody starts at the same place on the starting line. So I think, you know, having some of those ideas, the idea of counter storytelling, which is centering uh, minoritized voices and, you know, looking for different stories and, you know, having those kind of facets in mind as you're teaching. I think there are a lot of different critical theories that could inform practice. You know, critical feminism could also be useful in terms of like, unpacking some of the patriarchal ideas, but also a really intersectional feminist lens allows you to do critical race work as well in thinking about, you know, the way queer identities may be impacted in the classroom by different forces. So it allows you to kind of think across identities. And I think that anything that I do critically, I would want to have that intersectional framework because I think you know, we need to be thinking about all identities and the way that they're impacted and minoritized in different capacities. And also the way that most people hold privilege in some capacity, whether it's being able-bodied or being the right age, there are many different ways. It's uncommon to check every privilege box, but it's also uncommon to check every minoritized box. Like there's usually some kind of balance and that's not to say there aren't exceptions. There absolutely are. Sure. But usually there's some it's a matrix, right? That's what Patricia Collins talks about, the matrix of domination, all of our identities 
intersect and they make us our unique selves and but also impact us in terms of levels of privilege and oppression. I appreciate you elaborating on that. And it just brings me back to if we're not intentional and aware of what our perspective is, we will go on automatic pilot and that will not bring about the kind of transparency we want in our classrooms. It's going to inflict oppression in ways that we don't mean to if we're not aware. And so that is my reaction to what you said. But it's that reminder that we need to not just choose, we need to choose the lens for sure, but we also need to just be aware of what we're bringing into the situation. And that that is ongoing work. I think the other piece is that as teachers, we're going to step in it at times. Like it's yep. impossible to, you know, have a perfect intersectional understanding across all identities. There are a lot of different identities. And I think that some ways to think about some identities are probably more prevalent than others. You know, disability often gets left off the table. So I think, right. you know, there are times we're going to make mistakes or say something that reinscribes an oppression that we didn't intend to. And I think what's important there is the mending. And like to go back and to actually address what happened and to not let it stand, to recognize that you made a mistake and take time to actually correct that. And to, you know, that that sends a powerful message about, you know, what you value in the classroom and that you're willing to admit that you're wrong and that you value that work. And as a model for what students can also do. Mm -hmm. Thank you for putting those pieces together. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. We've talked a little bit about CRT, critical race theory, and this pushback against critical race theory is gaining traction in many, many states, actually even more so from the time when we agreed on the podcast questions to now, there's been even movement. How might activist music education answer this active assault on connection, historical truth and equity in states where there are CRT bans or some version of them, and also where there are not? It's a tough question. (laughs) It is a really tough question. And I like, I mean, I've mostly been watching in horror, to be honest. Yeah. So I don't know that I have a solid answer for it. But I think, you know, my only real response is like, it's the importance of continuing to teach history and the tradition of CRT, even if we don't call it that, Mm. you know, to kind of really make sure that we're making things transparent. But I think also like it makes the three elements of pedagogy that I put forward even more important and particularly a pedagogy of noticing because questioning what you encounter when teaching actual history could become illegal is absolutely crucial. Like we have to be able to foster this critical questioning and teach students to challenge what's being put in front of them if they're not receiving real history in schools. And I think something circulated It might have even been 2019. That was a while ago. But there was, you know, a side by side look at a Texas and a California textbook. And the way that they were putting history out there was very, very different, depending Mm. on the political climate of those particular states. You know, so I think we have to teach those questioning schools because it skills, because it encourages youth not to accept anything at face value. And it's clear if actual history is illegal, they're going to need these skills. Mm -hmm. And so I think continuing to foster those ideas amidst an active refusal to capitulate to this non-history history history that's whitewashed and not truthful about what actually happened. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we need to be able to actively foster in youth, like the desire to seek out other perspectives, you know, than the ones that they're encountering in a book, for example. 
and doubling down on those skills, I think at this time could be quite useful. Mm. There's so much to think about there, isn't there? Just and, and it really does have to do with how we approach the music, right? It's what do we do with this music that's in front of us? How do we interact with it? How do we understand it? How do we ask students to respond to it, interact with it, mm-hmm. connect to it? Yeah. Yeah. This has been a phenomenal conversation. I'm so grateful for your being here and for your willingness to share your experience, but also your passion for this. I think it's infectious. It's infectious to me, and I'm sure it will be to folks who are listening as well. Is there anything else that you would like to add uh, to our conversation or anything that maybe came to you along the way that you want to throw in there? I mean, I think one of the things that I just keep coming back to is that music is a humanizing practice. Like we are in an age where dehumanization is rampant Mm. and we are seeing it everywhere. And I think music, particularly this idea of connection and community, like when we connect to people who engage with the music that we're engaging with, then we are inherently engaging in a humanizing practice. And I think that the more we do that, the more we're going to move towards something hopeful in society. And I think there's so much potential in music to do exactly that. And I want to live on that side of it. And I also, you know, when teaching music, want to be thinking about ways that I can do it in a way that actively promotes seeing the humanity of others and breaking down some of the stereotypes that youth encounter and helping them recognize the ideologies that circulate and also encouraging them to challenge what they see in front of them, including challenging the teacher. And that, you know, having all of those things at play, I think, creates a different possible future. And so much of what has gone wrong has to do with believing some of these dominant oppressive discourses that are just circulating freely and having youth able to kind of recognize their ideologies for one Mm. and actually be able to kind of take them apart, whether or not they agree with them or not, like Mm -hmm. it's an important skill. And I see music as a mechanism for doing that. And that makes me really hopeful towards what might come while also being very realistic about where we're at currently, and particularly with these bands on CRT. And, you know, wanting to do everything I can to work against some of what's coming down the pipes. Yeah. I'm also thinking about the book and how you've given us so many concrete examples and ways to think about it. But the book also, you have these incredible artist educators who are providing inspired examples of what they've done. But not only that, as educators, we can read what they've done and figure out how it connects to our own classroom. And I think that's one of the things that's that's so powerful about the book, in addition to the way that you framed it, which is is so helpful. Uh, so I just want to encourage folks who are listening to to get the book and to, to be inspired about what is possible and about this humanization and this connectivity and to consider these incredible educators that you interviewed for your book. The other piece that I'm working on right now, part of research reciprocity is like, I wasn't looking for teachers when I was doing the study, but 12 Mm. activist musicians did teach in some capacity because it's really hard to be a musician and not teach. (laughs) And a couple of them were classroom (laughs) teachers, but also teaching artists and, you know, working with youth and outside of school community programs. And so it was a range. So one of the asks that a few people mentioned was wanting curriculum. 
mm. uh, to be able to take into school. So I'm actually kind of working now. I have a grant from Agrigento to develop a curriculum that resonates with the ideas in the book. So I've been working on that for the past year or so slightly interrupted by the pandemic. So I'm hoping to get that out there sometime in the near future. That sounds incredible. And I want to ask you about 16 million questions, but that'll have to be a different podcast. <laughs> so on, actually on that note, we will put your contact information and um, the resources that you've shared on the podcast page, but please tell us how people can continue to learn from you and with you. And if they're interested in this curriculum stuff that you're putting together, how can folks continue to be in contact with you if they'd like to connect? Well, I mean, feel free to get in touch. I mean, I'm assuming you'll put my email. Yes, uh, absolutely. And I'm happy to be in conversation. And I'm at Michigan State University. And, you know, we have a thriving doctoral program and a master's program that can be done in the summers. And that's, you can continue your teaching job and do this summer degree. And would love to have a diverse group of students in this program. And so feel free to be in touch and I'm happy to answer any questions. Wonderful. That would be an incredible opportunity. It makes me want to consider a doctoral degree again, actually. <laughs> Amazing. Juliet, thank you so much for your heart, for your scholarship, for being such an articulate leader and educator. You really inspire me. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you again, Dr. Juliet Hess, for sharing your deep, grounded thinking in ways that are so practical and implementable in the classroom. It was truly an honor to speak with you on the podcast. Be sure to pick up Dr. Hess's books, Music Education for Social Change, Constructing an Activist Music Education, and Trauma and Resilience in Music Education, Haunted Melodies. And who knows, for some of you right now might be the perfect time to be in touch with her about master's or doctoral studies. You can find more information on all of the resources mentioned in today's podcast at musicedforward.com slash podcast slash 24. Thank you again, Dr. Hess, for joining me in this conversation. You inspire me and so many other people I know. Most sincere gratitude.